Hi everyone, this is John Galea for Mastermind.fm. Today I have my dad, Joseph Galea, with me. And our guest today is Cormac Leach from Axia Funder. Axia Funder came across my radar as an innovative platform, which I came across uh, lately. And I wanted to dig deeper into both the platform itself and this way of investing, which seemed so new to me. So Cormac, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. Good to be here. All right, so to start off, I guess, if you could just give us a brief intro about yourself and the platform and the kind of investing that it promotes. Yeah, sure. So my name is Cormac Leach. I have been in investment banking in one way or another for around 25 years. Started off in interest rate derivatives and uh, interest rate option trading and structuring, and then moved into equity research, uh, writing large reports on some of the the kind of global banks such as HSBC, Barclays, and and Goldman Sachs and and others. So you know, have been both an interest rate. Uh, derivatives and also equities, and then more recently moved into alternative finance and was intrigued by the opportunity to disrupt the banking system using financial technology. And while I was in alternative finance, I became very interested in litigation finance as a unusually attractive kind of subsector or sub-sector opportunity for alternative finance. You know, was excited about the opportunity to create value by providing capital is badly needed for commercial litigation cases and at the same time giving you know retail investors and smaller institutional investors access to a new asset class that can deliver what I think are very interesting risk adjusted returns that are non-correlated and are comfortably double digit um, which is very competitive relative to other opportunities that are currently available. That's very interesting. Your past sounds pretty complex to me, but for the average investor, the private investor who's looking at Axia Funder at the moment, if you could boil down in a nutshell what what it is that uh, Axia Funder is helping, I think that would be a good good way to start off. Yeah, so Axia Funder is focused on providing capital for smaller commercial litigation cases that would oftentimes struggle to find capital. So these are typically cases where there's a defendant who has deep pockets, um, a strong financial position, but has behaved in, uh, in, in you know, bluntly in a bad way. And then on the other side of the equation, you have a claimant who has a very strong case on legal merits and you know the, the, the morals of the case but doesn't have the money. So there's a a great opportunity to create value by supplying capital into that picture. And at the moment, uh, there's quite a lot of friction and inertia. So then a lot of the existing litigation funders that operate with a balance sheet model and significant overheads struggle to profitably serve that smaller segment. So using financial technology um, approaches and operating with a lean just-in-time model, it's possible to provide capital into those kind of situations. And it's a win-win. The claimant uh, is able to pursue a case they otherwise wouldn't be able to pursue. And on the other hand, investors get very attractive returns. In terms of the way we operate the model, we pre-vet all of the cases. So we'll typically reject nine out of every 10 cases that come across our desk. Cases come from brokers, 
from lawyers that come direct to us via axiofunder.com, the website, and we filter out cases that don't work. So we have 10 criteria that we use to score cases. We score cases on merits, on enforceability, on the ratio of the claim value to the cost to litigate. We always make sure that we are protecting against adverse cost risk. We want to make sure that the legal team is appropriate and experienced. We want to make sure there's good alignment of incentives, uh, both for the legal team, the solicitor, the barrister, and the claimant. We want to make sure that there are no issues around security for cost. We want to make sure there are no um, problematic uh, regulations that would uh, you know, po- pose difficulty. Uh, we want to make sure that we're fully funded through trial. And then lastly, we want to make sure that the pricing is appropriate. So we're always taking risk in a situation. We want to make sure that investors' net of our fees are being appropriately compensated for the risk that they're taking. So we kind of score the cases on those criteria. And our principle is that because we're early stage platform, we want to be as transparent as we can. So we want to give investors as much information as possible within reason. And we can talk about limitations on that. But at the same time, we want to vet the cases so that an investor who didn't want to do any work himself can just blindly or you know, without doing uh, extensive due diligence can just allocate a small amount of capital to each of our cases. And we expect that that particular investor will do, will do well over time. It's very important for investors to diversify their investments. So we would encourage investors to take the amount of capital that they might want to deploy on Axia Funder, divide it by at least 10, possibly 20, and then allocate that amount of capital to each case so that they build up a portfolio of cases um, that you know, we believe statistically will be uh, you know, generate the same returns with much less uh, volatility or variability of, of the returns. Cormac, um, I'm going to take the position of a semi-literate sort of informed investor, right? Okay. I have to admit that I was struck by this innovative way of investing, investing in litigation cases. First of all, my first you know, thought was, is this legal? And I understand that until quite recently, say 60s, 70s, it was actually illegal no, to, to do this. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and the reason it was illegal is if you go back to feudal medieval times, I think back to 1200s or 1300s, if you and I were feudal lords and you didn't like me, we had a dispute. One way that you would, it used to be that you would get your, your soldiers and uh, you would attack me on the battlefield and try to kill me. But then as civilization became a little bit more advanced, rather than try to kill me on the battlefield, you would get perhaps 50 of your servants, and you would tell each of the servants to litigate against me in the court, and you would pay all of their legal fees so that I spend the rest of my life sitting in the courtroom facing off litigation after litigation. And they're all entirely spurious and frivolous litigations, but you know, you've destroyed my lifestyle. So to protect people against that happening, the king or the authorities decreed that you cannot fund someone else's litigation. And that effectively solved that particular problem. The issue is that as centuries passed, the legal system became more and more complex and the cost of pursuing litigation steadily increased such that the benefit to society from making it illegal to fund litigation wasn't as great as the benefit to society of improving access to justice by allowing people to fund litigation. And after the Second World War, when the soldiers came back from, from fighting, you know, they rightly felt entitled to a good standard of service from the government. 
and legal aid was put in place. So the government would fund your case if you needed funding. That was the way it operated for a couple of decades. And then the government realized this was very expensive for the government because there was a lot of legal aid required. And quite rightly, they decided, you know, this is something the private sector can do better than the government. So they uh, effectively overruled the longstanding prohibition around litigation funding. And uh, that enabled litigation funding to, to, to emerge. And it's steadily being uh, getting more sophisticated since then. Actually, <laughs> it reminded me of Robin Hood, because as I see it from the literature that I have, I have been through, uh, it seems that a claimant who is bullied uh, by somebody because he's richer, etc., can find solace in other investors who join, and then they share the rewards. And uh, this is why I'm saying it's like Robin Hood, because Robin Hood used to help the underdog, right, to bring about social justice uh, yeah yeah <laughs> if well, I, I know think, history think, history well <laughs> yeah yeah i i think i think that that is one perspective and you know I, I think it is nice to think that you know ultimately there's there's a positive impact on on the claimant i i used to think about it in that way but then my thinking has slightly changed to the following so our platform the way i see it really is enabling risk spreading so if you're a claimant and you have one claim against, uh, let's say, for sake of argument, a very large multinational. And let's suppose that it's an enormous claim. Let's suppose that it's worth $100 million just for sake of argument. Then, and let's suppose that your probability of winning that claim is 75% and you know, net of recoveries and so on, you should expect to get uh, perhaps $50 million. So on most measures, your net assets are $50 million and you're a very wealthy person. However, the issues for you is you have no liquidity, you can't spend this $50 million, and you have excessive concentration risk. All of your capital is tied up in one highly risky contingent claim. So the way I think of our platform, really, it's a, it's a, a risk spreading operation. So we're enabling that particular individual to spread his risk or, or reallocate a lot of it, unbundle and, and share the value of that asset, sell that asset, if you will, to other investors. Um, at an appropriate discount and turn it into cash. So that's maybe a simplistic way of thinking about it. But I, I see it as rather than being like the good guy, uh, like Robin Hood, uh, you know, who's kind of operating on a pro bono basis, I like to think of it as, yes, there is that dimension, but primarily we're about making money and it's very hard-nosed um, commercial uh, calculus that we're trying to do. Because otherwise, uh, we would get the analysis wrong. If we kind of think of ourselves like Robin Hood, that's the wrong, wrong mindset. It has to be more about uh, making people money. No, but on the other hand, uh, an investor would look at it in a more sympathetic way because the ultimate cause in my opinion, is good because you have no, agree, normally, you. you have a bully against the underdog. The underdog most probably is right in his claim. Therefore, he can find the means to keep on, you know, uh, the struggle uh, I, for justice. I, I, I agree with you, particularly uh, millennials uh, you know, are not just happy with making money. They also want to have a positive impact. I think you're right. You know, when people are investing, you know, it's important actually that they have a positive impact. Uh, you know, it has to be constructive for society, right? So I personally would never invest in tobacco stocks uh, for that reason. I don't believe in the product. And so that seems like a nice thing to do. But there's also the benefit that if you invest in things that have a positive social impact, over time, it's going to create benefits for you because regulation will change in your favor. People will, are more likely to support you. Yes, so there are feel-good benefits from doing the right thing, as it were, 
are creating value, but then it also has hidden commercial benefits as well. Yeah, I agree totally. That is, if I am going to invest, I'm going to invest in something profitable for me, but at the same time, driving forward a good course. The other thing that struck me was the risk entailed in all this, because sometimes it's difficult to assess the ultimate uh, probability of success and how long this blessed court case is going to take. Yeah, no, it's a good question. So it used to be pre-COVID that cases would run two to three years, on average two and a half years if they go to trial, but 80 to 90% of them will typically settle before court. Uh, so, you know, we'll settle well before two and a half years. With COVID and the pandemic, it probably adds six, perhaps 12 months to the time frame. So it's definitely a factor to bear in mind. You also asked about risks. So the, the statistics are that 80 to 90% of these cases settle before trial. And if they settle before trial, on the vast majority of our cases, we are positioned in the cash waterfall so that we get paid back our principal and our return before the claimant gets paid. So any settlement that results in a payment to the to the claimant means that we're typically getting paid in full according to our contract, which is a good outcome for us, which is put differently means on 80% or so of the cases, by virtue of them settling early, we are winning. It's a win for the for the Therefore, for the when you say that they settle early, it means an out-of-court settlement? Correct, yeah, before the trial commences. Now, of course, you know, there are oftentimes hidden risks or unforeseen circumstances. So on average, we tend to model our cases that our cases will win 70 to 75% of the time, which is to say our we get paid our contractual entitlement. But if the case goes to trial, let's say 20% of the time, at trial, the risk is much higher for us and for our investors. And that's because it depends on the performance of witnesses, it depends who the judge is and how favorably they're disposed to the claimant, and lots of complex factors. So broad brush, you can think that 80% of the time we're we're winning because the case has settled pre-trial. And then of the 20% of cases that go to trial, we're winning around half of them. So on a kind of a, a full probability basis, we're winning 90% of the cases. Now, that's too high. I mean, I think IMF Bentham, or one of the uh, more established litigation funders, have achieved success rates of around 90%. But at the other end of the spectrum, uh, funds like, for example, I think Burford have a lower success rate of something around 75%. And the reason for that lower success rate, I think, is that there are unforeseen circumstances. The facts change in the case, and you may withdraw the case pre-trial. Things can go wrong. So, you know, we, we think all taken all together, the probability of us winning a particular case is 70 75% if we have properly pre-vetted the cases as we do on the platform. Do you select the type of cases, for example, only commercial, for example, or you go into other areas as well? Uh, so far, we have only done commercial litigation, and that is mainly because that's where the expertise is of the assessment team. So we have an individual called Michael Lent, uh, who's been a litigator for 34 years. He's been assessing cases for over 12 years. He's an excellent track record. I think he's got something like a 90% success rate in terms of uh, cases that he's selected uh, for funding and, and insurance. Um, so he, he knows about commercial litigation. In principle, we would be open to moving into other types of litigation like high value personal injury and potentially even family law. But 
it would probably require us building out the team more and the pricing would probably have to change because the nature of commercial litigation is that you can effectively charge a higher cost of capital. Whereas if you're funding family claims or personal injury claims, the returns can be uh, lower. I see. Obviously, the rate of success also depends on the type of screening that you carry out on the cases that are presented to you. Can you please give us a bit of an idea of uh, how you're organized and what type of expertise apart from the gentleman that you have uh, mentioned and whether actually you might depend too much on this gentleman that you refer to? Yeah, it's a good question. So when a case comes to us, very often it already has a solicitor who understands the case in detail and is engaged on the case. So there are kind of think about multiple lines of defense in terms of uh, the screening process. The first one is the solicitor is already engaged on the case. If he's working on a contingent basis, it's a very good sign because it shows that the solicitor believes in the case, so he's willing to risk some of his own fees. That is, uh, uh, he's working for a success fee, right? Correct. He's working. So sometimes it's a 100% success fee, so he only gets paid if the case wins. Sometimes he's on a partial success fee. And it's not always black and white. Uh, sometimes a lawyer is working on 100% success success basis because that's the only way he can find work that he can do. So it's not necessarily always a good sign if the solicitor is on a 100% uh, success basis. But if it's a very capable solicitor and he's still working on a success basis, then that's a powerful sign. He strongly believes in the case because he's looking to maximize his return and and has a conviction. In the UK and uh, in most common law jurisdictions, if you lose the case, you have to pay the fees of the other side, which means you need to have typically a solution for adverse cost risk. And most people look to solve that by getting an insurance company involved. So oftentimes when we're looking to fund a case, an insurance company has already agreed to underwrite the case. And that means that a senior underwriter who's employed by the insurance company has looked in detail at the merits of the case. And if the insurance companies get getting paid on a deferred contingent basis, which means the insurance company only gets paid if the case wins. And obviously, if the case loses, they're having to pay out uh, a substantial amount. So the fact that a senior underwriter working for an insurance company has agreed to underwrite the case, again, that gives us some degree of confidence that the case is a good one. So the lines of defense are the solicitor is hopefully working on a a contingent basis, an insurance company likes the case. And then if our own assessor, Michael Lent, likes the case, then we have three independent experts who all are supportive of the case. Sometimes if it's a larger case and it's complex, we'll also go out for an independent opinion from a barrister. So we'll pay a independent barrister to spend some time, sometimes one, two, possibly longer, one or two days looking at the, the merits of the case. So there are multiple sets of eyes looking at the case. And then, of course, you know, I look at the case from a financial point of view and uh, look at different scenarios and measure the risk in different scenarios. So we try to make smart decisions because ultimately the success of our platform uh, depends on the success of the investors into each individual case. So we're, we're so are you restricted well. to, to, to the UK or, um, for example, if I take a case of the European Court of Justice and I come to you for funding? Uh, we, can, we can fund international cases where litigation funding is not illegal. So, for example, in the Republic of Ireland, they didn't get the memo yet about uh, litigation funding being uh, positive for society. So 
So the Republic of Ireland tends to follow the UK with a lag of, you know, sometimes 5, 10, 20 years. And they're now actually getting around to realizing that actually litigation funding would be beneficial. Um, so the, the legislation is, is slowly uh, emerging such that litigation funding will become legal in the Republic of Ireland, but at the moment you can't do it. So, Therefore, in the I, European Union, um, there is no directive as such to all the member states. All the member states can decide whether they sort of legalize it or not, if I understand. Um, that's correct. So, for example, I think it's still correct to say, well, actually, I think the UK is no longer in the EU, of course, right? But uh, France, Germany, most countries in Europe allow litigation funding, but the Republic of Ireland doesn't. So, yes, the, the answer is yes. It's up to the, uh, the, the the particular country itself to decide. Therefore, um, if there's a case in front of the European Court of Justice, you would be willing to uh, fund it as well, if I understand you well. Um, we'd need to take advice. It's a complex question, so we'd need to go to a, a specialist in that area and and find out because uh, it would be very negative for us if we if we started funding that case and it turned out to be uh, unenforceable. <laughs> well, I mean, the claimant could turn around. It would be and high say, profile, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, the claimant could turn around to us and say we're not paying your share of the proceeds because the contract is unenforceable because litigation funding is is not allowed in this jurisdiction. But Cormac, I mean, the claimant, if I understand well, he has nothing to lose, right? Absolutely nothing to lose. He loses half of the winnings, oh, no, the award. The yeah, winners. so he's, he's giving away a lot of his upside, potentially. Uh, it depends how, how large the claim value is. But effectively, he's, he's reducing his upside such uh, to fund the case. But in, in um, effect, in he cannot go out of pocket, basically. No, he cannot go out of pocket. That's correct. He can never end up in a situation where he owes money to us or to our investors. Therefore, if he arrives at a situation where he cannot continue funding and he would have no option but to stop, if he comes to you, then another avenue opens up to him without any disbursement. Do I get it uh, right? Yes, that is correct. And of course, then the question for him is, is Axia Fundo the cheapest, best deal available? So probably makes sense for him to go to a broker and ask the broker to contact different funders in the market you know, to get the best possible deal. But yes, in principle, at that point, he has no downside from contacting a litigation funder to continue his claim. And uh, where do you think that you have the edge on your competitors? Uh, it's a good question. So a lot of our competitors have large overheads and expensive offices and operate a, a fund model, which is to say they get a lot of capital lined up on a basis such that they can call it when they need it. Um, that capital is deployed. And then when that capital comes back, oftentimes it stays in the fund waiting to invest in the next case. And there can be a lockup of, 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 for example, up to 10 years on the capital. So it's a much less efficient model. And also, um, because some of our competitors source capital from institutions that may have imposed restrictions, you know, for example, you can only invest in, in cases in the UK, you can only invest in cases that fit these criteria in terms of the ratio of the value of the claim versus the cost to litigate. For example, perhaps the solicitor must have fees at risk in the claim. There can be various restrictions imposed by, by competitors. By contrast, we are more flexible because we can source the capital from different investors 
And as long as we explain the opportunity to our investors, then investors can make up their own mind if they're happy to, for example, fund a case with a ratio of the claim value to the cost to litigate, which is lower than, for example, 10 times, or if they're happy to fund the case, which is in France or Germany versus the UK. So we have, we have more flexibility. Um, we are more efficient in our use of capital. We have lower overheads. So we have lot, we have several uh, advantages, I would say, which enable us to have some pricing power in the market. And in terms of experience, are you better than, than others? Well, I think in terms of skill set, uh, Michael Lent, who is assessing the cases or is kind of our main gatekeeper in terms of assessing cases, He's 64, 65. He's been litigating for over 30 years and assessing cases of over 12 years. So I think he is very experienced relative to other assessors in the market. You know, I've been in finance for 20, 25 years, kind of used to assessing risk and I'm used to financial modeling and structuring. So on the financial side and the structuring side, I think I'm, you know, relatively experienced. And on the assessment side, I think Michael Lent is relatively experienced. So on a combined basis i think um you know it says we have a strong offering okay therefore let's say you have convinced me to invest right as i see it i'm investing in litigation since there is the risk that at the end of the day i might end up losing my investment if i understand it well it's good to have such an investment if it fits into a balanced portfolio of investments not to put all the eggs in one basket, yeah. and then you, you end up losing losing everything, although the rewards might be high as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, therefore, do you pass the um, investors through some kind of test in terms of knowledge and whether do they fully understand all the implications? Yeah. Uh, no, it's a good question. So we are an appointed representative of an FCA regulated firm in the UK, and they've been very helpful in terms of helping us uh, design our uh, onboarding for investors. And part of that process has a risk questionnaire for investors. Uh, so there are 10 questions that investors have to answer correctly. And uh, they have to get, uh, there are some of the questions which are key. I think six of the questions are key and they have to get the right answer. And then some of the questions are less critical, more informational. But in order to be able to invest, uh, investors mu must get those those questions correct. So that that enables us to make sure people coming onto the platform understand what they're doing and have a certain level of sophistication in terms of understanding risk, reward, the importance of diversification, okay. the lack of liquidity, and so on. Okay. Therefore, let's assume that I've passed the test. Can I interject for a moment? Sure. Like my, I've been investing in several different platforms over the past five years, and I've come across also such tests. Personally, I haven't ever found them something unsurmountable. If I know what I'm doing, I can get through the test. I, I understand. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I understand it as a general filter. Yeah. So I'm sure I would be able to get through the test. The problem is I know nothing about litigation. Okay. So what the platforms typically say is spread your risk. Yeah which means that unless I have millions of euro or pounds to invest, I'm going to be investing relatively small amounts in each case yeah. or each investment. Yeah. The problem then becomes how much time am I going to dedicate to investigating each case? Ultimately, it doesn't make sense if I'm going to invest 1,000, even 5,000 pounds. I'm not going to spend days analyzing and trying to learn 
First of all, I don't know about litigation. And secondly, I'm going to spend time, which doesn't make the return worth it. Okay. So what in practice ends up happening is I say I have 50,000 to invest, pick 10 and invest more or less blindly. You know? The problem is that you really don't know what you're doing and you're trusting the platform. Right, right. And that's what happened with various other platforms in the past where investors realized three, four years in that their money is stuck somewhere where the platform doesn't really care because they've made their money or um, like they realized that they made an investment blindly, basically, but they had no other choice. So there's this now counter... Uh, argument which says do not diversify focus on the investments that you really know and can analyze okay. if you have fifty thousand, yeah it's better to put forty thousand in stocks if that's what you understand and uh, instead of spreading 10k in real estate 10k in litigation another 10k in p2p lending and so on and so forth where you lose almost track of all your investment right so that's that's it i think is it is it warren buffett or charlie munger said put all your eggs in one basket and watch watch that basket right that's what yeah in fact warren buffett for example says he would never touch something like crypto because he's not techno right, right. so he just yeah. ignores that yeah well, actually yeah. i don't agree with this line of thinking myself this is my personal opinion and um, because if you are a seasoned investor you start learning most of the, you know, ins and outs of various investments, uh, respective on, uh, in which sector. For example, I discuss with Jean a lot about cryptos, for example, uh, something which he finds it easy to understand, and I don't find it easy to understand, but I am learning. I am learning slowly, slowly, and eventually um, I think I will improve my knowledge. I think that if you find the right platform, for example, in, in your case, I would do a due diligence exercise on you and I'm convinced that you are a serious company. And I say, yes, it seems that they are doing their business well. They are into it as much as I am. As you say, you have your skin. I think this is the term that that's used because if the case is lost, I lose my money, but you lose your fees and, uh, and this is where uh, you finance your your salary and your profit etc therefore i think that it wouldn't be a bad idea for an investor to put a slice of his investments into something like this actually this intrigued me a lot that this uh, i hadn't come across it before and uh, the fact that socially, I think it's, it's just as long as the case is, is just as well. For example, I wouldn't put an investment into a case where a criminal is fighting with the justice. I mean, I wouldn't put my money there. Another thing that I wanted to ask you is whether, as, as Jean rightly said, I wouldn't have the time, you know, to go into a prospectus, all the details, small print. People hate hate those complicated documents. And uh, I've been through a number of these. Even those who draw them up sometimes end up, you know, losing some focus. They're too complicated. <laughs> Therefore, there is, I think, um, there is a break-even point, a trade-off between 
being um, informative and being too complex where people find it very difficult to understand. Therefore, if I don't have the time, as John said, I'm very busy and I say, these people look look serious. I mean, they make sense. Can I put money into a discretionary fund that you use? And I tell you, uh, Cormac, I trust you. I have 10,000 euros, 10,000 sterling in your hands, in your good hands, and you choose the cases. Okay, probably would charge me some additional fee. I don't know. But I might choose a case, a particular case. Spreading my risk again on a number of cases gives me a bit of a bit more hedge. Do you charge a fee for that? If I uh, tell you, Cormac, it's in your hands. It's a discretionary yeah. sort of investment. Yeah, it's a good question. So we're working on a feature called Auto Invest that I think some other platforms have. So, you know, you could for like our minimum investment into each case is 500 pounds. So you could say, Cormac, I'd like to put 500 pounds into each case. You could have the ability to cancel. So typically we will run the cases for at least a couple of days, but sometimes for as long as a month it's sitting on the platform. So we could have a, a service where we allow you to auto-invest, allocate £500 to each case, but then you could cancel the investment to a particular case if you looked at the details and you really didn't like it. But the default would be you put £500 in from your wallet. We haven't formalized that, but we do have some investors that are investing into each case and you know, we contact them and we have dialogue. Um, you know, we're still at the stage where we can communicate with all of our investors. You know, we typically in any given investment at the moment will have, you know, less than 100 investors involved. And on some of them, it will be, you know, 30 or 40 investors. So, you know, over the course of a couple of weeks, you've got time to have some dialogue with the investors on each case. But over time, when we get bigger, then we probably would need to automate this feature so that people can auto invest into each case. But I think it's a good idea. It makes sense. And over time, we may also start to create fund offerings where instead of asking people to invest into each case, we actually say, okay, rather than investing or rather than funding cases a couple of hundred thousand at a time, we might say, for example, raise a two million pound fund and say, this fund will invest into each of the cases, take a share of each of the next, uh, you know, I don't know, 20 cases, for example. So rather than investing into cases, people can invest into the fund. I think other platforms have done this, like in the litigation space, I think lectures.com in New York have have created this kind of fund. And in the equity crowdfunding space, I think Cedars, S-E-E-D-R-S, Cedars have, have created this kind of fund. So there are different ways to kind of uh, create automatic diversification for investors. And possibly also um, a possibility that if we win a case, uh, instead of me taking out the money, I will leave the money and keep rolling sort of from one case to the next and it's growing. Yeah. And uh, if if you can compound capital at uh, the returns that we hope to achieve of, you know, around 30%, uh, you can do the math after 10 years, that turns into uh, pretty interesting. Uh, multiple on capital. But of course, you know, um, I think it's important to uh, emphasize, you know, and our, um, our our compliance team will be keen for us to emphasize that the you know, capital is always at risk and, and returns are, are not guaranteed. But uh, on a portfolio basis, we can compound at, uh, you know, 20 to 30%. That I think is very helpful in the long run. 
And once we compared and mentioned other types of investing platforms, one other feature apart from auto-invest that is popular on these platforms is the secondary market, which provides liquidity to investors. I don't know if that would make sense on a platform like yours. Have you considered it? Or yeah, yeah no, it's, a, it's, it's a good question. And it's something that some of our larger investors have asked us for. And there are some restrictions around offering a secondary market. Uh, you need to make sure you have the right regulatory licenses. However, under the FCA regime, we are allowed to enable some of our investors who have liquidity issues and want to get cash from some of their investments to make some of their investments available for sale. And we're in the process of designing a um, effectively a, what's called a bulletin board. But in effect, it's a quite a basic uh, secondary market for investments. And then the challenge for us becomes to determine the right price at each point in the evolution of a case. So I think the way it would work rather than a pure secondary market where people can set their bids and asks we would do some analysis on the the status of the case the amount of time that accrued and we would do some numbers to figure out what we think the theoretical fair value might be and then we'll probably discount that price such that the buyer is getting a good deal so to speak while at the same time the seller is still getting a nice uplift on their capital to reflect the initial investment they made so uh, there are also some issues around asymmetry of information so we need to make sure that both sides uh, you know it's a level playing field in terms of um, the information available but subject to those constraints uh, we're excited about secondary market because it can add a degree of liquidity so investors then you know have the potential to be able to liquidate their position you know perhaps after six or 12 months rather than being forced to hold the investment to maturity which could be as long as three years but it would be you that put that put the seller and the buyer together, right? So I think the way it needs to work is that the buyer and the seller are anonymized, but they're visible on a platform and they can kind of signal to each other on an anonymized basis that they want to sell. And then basically we, we facilitate that once they've uh, kind of found each other, so to speak. But we need to be quite careful that we don't breach the, um, the regulatory restrictions uh, because we're not on exchange. So one other thing that perhaps we haven't really mentioned is the fact that this kind of investment is non-correlated to other typical assets that investors are used to be handling, especially on online platforms like real estate, stocks, P2P lending. How true is that? And maybe you could expand on, on this particular aspect. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, it's a good question. I think there are a couple of interesting dynamics. So I think when there's a severe recession, there are surprise, there's stresses and strains that emerge um, in business relationships, which leads to litigation. The other dynamic is that sometimes a small business will be, you know, in a boom time, they're very much focused on generating revenue and they have some issues that they would like to litigate, but they don't have the time. So they just leave the claim in the drawer. And then in a recession, it, they're less focused on growth, there are less opportunities for growth. So they take the claim out of the drawer and say, okay, this can become cash for me. They so that cling to create, anything. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, they have time to, you know, through the, it's logical, right? And when you're less focused on growth, you have more time to do some housekeeping or, you know, clean up your potential claims. On the other hand, in a recession, property goes down in value, equities go down in value. In general, people have less cash. So there is the risk that the the defendant's ability to pay a claim is reduced in a recession. So is it strictly true to say there is zero correlation? Probably not zero, but typically where we have the confidence to fund a claim against a defendant, the defendant has 
a large margin of safety in terms of his ability to pay the claim so that a recession is very unlikely to uh, invalidate. So I think that is fair to say that there, there's effectively zero correlation. Yeah. So I, the other point to make is that in a recession, some of our competitors probably have less capital at the margin to invest. So there are more opportunities which are less competitive for us. So, for example, during the pandemic, I think we've seen an increase in the number of cases that we can access because I think to some extent our competitors are busy doing other stuff and we're in less competitive situations. I was wondering if there are any asset classes which you would be directly competing with or maybe not directly technically, but you're seeing investors reallocating funds from another asset class into this one? Yeah, it's a good question. So we're seeing some high net worth individuals who made uh, a lot of profit in commodities and oil who are now more interested in what we're doing because the oil market is not looking very uh, robust. So I think they're kind of shifting their attention. In terms of, you know, if, if you're to look for non-correlated asset classes, you know, I think like catastrophe reinsurance, some forms of reinsurance probably have low correlation with the macro economy. So they, they probably are comparable. And I think for what it's worth, here's a prediction, maybe we can have another podcast in 20 years. I think in 20 years time, the returns and mitigation funding will have trended towards the returns you can get from catastrophe reinsurance. Uh, which is a non-correlated asset class. So, you know, I don't think you will continue to be able to generate 30% returns from litigation. I think as more capital comes in and the market gets more liquid, the number of competitors increases, the returns, I think, will decrease to perhaps high single digits, perhaps, perhaps even lower. That's interesting because we had a lot of cases, for example, with real estate in the Baltics or in Spain, where two, three, four years ago, the returns were very high. And in just a short period, the returns went not only were they low, but some projects failed to complete. So that's as an investor, it's also a good uh, point to keep in mind while the returns might look good now. Maybe they wouldn't well, do so. So I'm, I'm, I'm probably I'm probably older than you, right? So I've seen I've seen this movie play out more more times. But <laughs> you know, in every you know, I've seen it in interest rate derivatives. I've seen it in equities. I've seen it in lending. You know, bank lending at the beginning there are very high returns available in a particular area of finance, and then as it becomes more mature, the available returns go vanishingly small to the you know marginal cost of uh, providing the the service. So I think uh, inevitably the same thing will happen with litigation. So I guess my question is, where are we on the time scale with litigation? Because like yeah. crypto, four years ago, you could make an immense percentage return, but now yeah, not so much. I think uh, we're we're still in the early stage of the process. If you look at our particular business, I think five years ago it would have been very difficult to set up the kind of business that we're doing because we rely on some uh, infrastructure. So we um, we white label some technology from a company called ShareIn that probably wasn't offering. I don't think the infrastructure that they provide to us was available five years ago. We rely quite heavily on, you know, it sounds, it sounds uh, superficial to say, but we rely heavily on Skype, on Zoom, on WhatsApp, on Excel, ability to share documents uh, quickly and conveniently. Um, a lot of these emergent technologies, which are kind of key to what we're doing, weren't really available. And then the litigation, uh, sorry, the regulation has become much more favorable as well in the last five years or so. So I would say we're about five years into a 20-year journey. So I think there are still some very high returns available. 
But in five years' time, I think the returns will be significantly lower. And I think it's worth mentioning also that you're basing this assumption on, I think, the UK only. Yeah, that's a good point. Our uh, opportunities that we focused on so far have been, I would say, about 80 or 90 percent UK. But I think that the opportunity to provide capital for smaller commercial claims is a global opportunity. And I think what's interesting about the lockdown is that it's been an excellent uh, test case or a laboratory condition to kind of show that you can actually operate this kind of uh, activity. And, and, you know, I'm sure your activity as well on a global basis, because during lockdown, it doesn't matter if you're working with a guy who's five miles away or 500 miles away. It's the same or 5,000, 5,000 miles away. <laughs> um, so I think what we're doing can be a global opportunity. The biggest limiting factor is knowledge and lack of expertise. It's always the hidden left field risks that you wouldn't necessarily know unless you live and breathe a particular geography or the jurisdiction that can catch you at. So it's very important. The biggest constraint to us in terms of exporting what we're doing globally is the expertise and the knowledge in each domain. So, so we have the confidence to, to operate there. Let's come to the nuts and bolts now. Okay, I'm convinced I'm going to invest. I've passed the test of knowledge. <laughs> then probably I have to pass the know your client assessment. Yep. Okay, and I'm ready to invest. Let's say I am Irish. Yep. In Ireland, it's still not legal to fund litigation. Can I actually invest with you if I'm Irish or if I am a resident of a country where it's not legal? So the short answer is, in that particular instance, yes, you can, because the determining factor is where the claim is being pursued. So in, in this example, most likely it's a UK claim that you'll be funding, and litigation funding is legal in the UK. Therefore, in your example, it would be permitted to fund the claim. Then our regulatory experts tell us that we can passport our regulation around the EEA with a high degree of confidence. Therefore, EEA investors can invest in the case. We do KYC investors. We use Sharon, who indirectly use a third-party KYC Agency. service. Yeah, who look at identity documents and then I think cross, I don't know exactly how it works, but I think they cross check the identity against the database. If, if they can't find a match in the database, then they request proof of address information and then the documents for proof of address are assessed and, and the KYC is complete. Okay. And is there a minimum amount that I have to invest? So it's 500 pounds per case at the moment. And the reason for that is that. You know, there's a certain amount of administration for us every time there's an investor. So um, we've set the limit at 500 pounds. It may decrease in the future, but it's, it's unlikely to increase if we can avoid it because we like to enable investors who started investing with us on the basis of 500 pounds per case to continue to be able to build their diversification. Okay. And uh, I ask for a prospectus maybe or some document that gives me an indication of the pros and cons of investing in a particular case right yep uh, okay i will make my own assessment i can ask questions if i understand well and you would guide me as to my risk appetite possibly my uh, level of rewards that, that i'm seeking yeah and then you can guide me through uh, the various opportunities that you might have right yeah if i am in a euro zone country can i invest in euros 
only in sterling at the moment. Uh, we are only able to accept capital uh, in sterling. Okay, so, therefore, uh, if the case is won, then the conversion into euros, if I decide to liquidate, to get my money back in Malta or in Spain or wherever, that would be converted into euros or else you transfer sterling to me, right? And then it would be up to me to convert the money into uh, euros, for example, if I am in the so eurozone. Right. So we, uh, quite a few of our international investors have used TransferWise to make the transfer, which I think is efficient from an FX point of view. We receive sterling. And then if we're paying sterling, it's a good question. So if you want to transfer from our account, from your wallet with Axie Funder back to your euro account, that's a question for the bank. I assume they can do the FX conversion. But, you know, so sterling, we would send sterling and your bank would convert it into euros, I would imagine. Okay. The case would, let's say it is in the UK and I am in another country. Do I have to pay any tax whatsoever in the UK? As I understand it, so I'm not an accountant. I think you perhaps can answer this question better than me. But if there's a double taxation treaty between the country where you pay tax and the UK, then we can pay interest to you with, a, with no withholding. If there isn't a double taxation treaty, we may have some withholding. I think it may depend on the jurisdiction. And for example, it might be 10% or it may be zero. I'm not sure. If you've invested into an equity, my understanding is we can pay you with no withholding. So, yeah, But if I, if I invest in a case, right, and uh, we get the award, and if I understand well, 50% goes to you and and us the investors right together you take I don't uh, know, 20 30 percent and we take the rest right and uh, the claimant would get the other 50 percent right so th those percentages are depend on the situation we would normally take less than 50 percent of the total proceeds collectively but broadly speaking what you've said is is in the ballpark okay but the uh, under english tax is that interest is that compensation because compensation so, usually does not carry any tax um, yeah so, so the structure is that in effect we create a special purpose vehicle which issues bonds or equities to finance itself and then takes a partial assignment of the proceeds of the claim the proceeds of the claim come into the spv and then the amount of that which is in excess of the amount which was invested by the FGV, uh, spv is revenue and that revenue is effectively it's like taxed. interest tant amount to interest it's revenue well i think it's it, from perspective of an spv it doesn't matter if it's interest or if it's uh, it, it's funds, it's, funds. It's, it's cash received so the profit is treated as revenue then within the SPV, if the SPV is bond finance, then it's paying at interest to the bondholders. If it's equity finance, it's paying corporation tax on the profits of the SPV. And then the shareholders, once the case is resolved, if it's an equity, we will typically wind up the SPV and then we distribute the capital of the SPV. And the treatment for that is typically capital gains tax treatment. So it varies. The tax treatment is slightly different if it's a bond or if it's uh, equity. And therefore, if I understand well, there would be tax in the UK. If there is a double tax treaty with my country, the rate of withholding tax is lower and I get uh, double taxation relief in my country. I believe that's on correct. The tax, on the tax paid in the UK. Well, so to clarify, as I understand it, if it's a bond and we are paying you, the investor, interest, if there's a double taxation treaty, we don't have to do any withholding in the UK. We pay the interest to you and then you declare the interest in your country. 
and that's how the tax gets treated. That's my understanding. Okay. One other question that I have is, uh, okay, let's say you have a situation where you have to raise, I don't know, 200,000 sterling capital from investors, and I put in 10,000. How can I be sure that you will ultimately find all the capital that you are looking for? Do you have some underwriting arrangement with some institution? Yeah. Therefore, if if uh, hundred thousand is raised and we need two hundred thousand, who is going to fork out the other hundred thousand to make it happen? So, on most of our cases, but not all of the cases, before we launch the case on the platform, we will show it to some of our partner companies that underwrite cases, which is to say they will make up any shortfall in the case. And in exchange for doing that, we pay them a fee. And then if we go on the platform and let's say we only manage to raise, let's say, 60% of the capital for sake of argument, then we can go to the underwriter and ask them, say, we are short uh, 40% of the capital. Will you invest it, please? such that we reach 100% of the funding target and we have a successful raise. On some of the cases, we don't have an underwriter who's willing to invest either because they're already fully invested or they don't like the case or the case is too big for them to underwrite. It depends. But in that instance, if, for example, we only got to 60% of the funding target, then we would go to the people that had shown interest in the case and had made commitments and had funded their portion of the of the investment, and we would re- return their capital to them and say, you know, unfortunately, we didn't manage to uh, reach our t- funding target on this case. Therefore, uh, we're returning your capital to you. So that second scenario is quite common on crowdfunding platforms. So as I understand it, with Cedar as a crowdcube, the equity crowdfunding platforms in the UK, um, something I don't know the percentage, but you know, something like perhaps 20% or 30% of their campaigns don't hit their target and the the campaign is just cancelled. Uh, so, you know, it's it comes with the territory. It's the nature of uh, crowdfunding that you don't always get to your funding target. And the rule is you tell people how much capital you need. If you don't hit that target, you just keep give people their money back. I see. And how long would that process take? Because I don't want to leave my money idle for some six months until you decide what to do. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So where we have an underwriter uh, who's willing to guarantee that we get the case funded, typically we'll negotiate with them that we'll run the case on the platform for three to four weeks. We find longer than that is actually counterproductive because everybody kind of sits back waiting for, you know, the, 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 to get close to being fully funded. And then they, you like to have a sense of um, urgency with, it, with a campaign. On the other hand, if you leave it too short, you know, if you're only going out for, say, one week or two weeks, you tend to not really attract any new investors and new capital. You tend to end up just leaning heavily on your existing core investors. So I think the optimum is about four weeks. So there is a scenario where you could invest your capital, we get to 60% funded, and a month goes by, and then we say, sorry, we didn't manage uh, to fund it, so here's your money back. So you could have your money lying idle, if you like, for a month. Do you take it as a first-come, first-served? Yes, um, that's one of our principles. Yeah, it's first-come, first-served. Therefore, if there is an oversubscription, you don't repay proportionately um, the excess. Correct, correct. It's, it's first-come, first-served, because... We want to create an incentive for people to invest early. So if it was a proportionate scale back, then everyone could just wait until the very end. Right? Okay. During the process of the lawsuit, do I get any updates, any information as to what's going on? 
Yeah. So we promise to update investors at least every three months and more regularly if there's a material update that we should tell people about. So yes, you will hear about every case at least once every three months. And that comes through a, a messaging system on the platform. Okay. My last question on this, uh, this process is this. Who is actually in charge? Once you put the funding together and you put it into this uh, lawsuit, who is in charge on behalf of the claimant? Therefore, my question is this, essentially. If the claimant gets tired, gets sick, is bullied, and he says, I don't want to continue with this. I don't want to have any more hassle. I am going to quit. Maybe he feels threatened. Obviously, if he does that, uh, it would be to our detriment because we would have put in all the money. <laughs> what happens? Correct. Yeah, it's a good question. So one safeguard we have against that is that we always want to see that the claimant is highly motivated on the claim. So um, you get that from talking to them, from communicating with them, from effectively working with them, getting the claim uh, prepared. But then also, you know, how much have they actually invested of their time and their capital into the claim themselves? But then also, and you know, it's probably of somewhat limited value, but in the litigation funding agreement with the claimant, they warrant and commit to pursuing the claim to the best of their abilities for the life of the claim. Uh, the fund cannot step into the claimant's shoes, right? We cannot because one of the key uh, principles of litigation funding, you know, the regulation, is that the funder is not allowed to interfere in the process. So we have to basically take a back seat, if you will, to the to the claimant and the claimant solicitor. And who decides on the lawyers? Is the claimant or is the fund? It's a good question. So oftentimes when we first get a site of a claim, it already has a solicitor in place who's engaged. And that's a very good quality control for us because, you know, solicitors typically will only work on a claim that they think is, is worthwhile. If for whatever reason the claimant wants to change the solicitor, then they need our permission. So we need to approve any change of solicitor um, from the solicitor who was present at the beginning of the process. And the, one of the reasons for that is that we get a irrevocable commitment from the solicitor that they will manage the proceeds of the case and make sure that we and our investors get paid. Because there is uh, or there has been some history of claimants who sign up for litigation funding, get the funding in place, win their claim, and then try to avoid paying the, the funder, which would be a very bad outcome for us. So the way that we protect ourselves is that we effectively have a, a three-way agreement, if you will, with the solicitor running the case such that if we don't get paid, we have recourse to the solicitor. And solicitors typically will have professional indemnity insurance of several million pounds so that, you know, if we don't get paid, we have recourse and, and an ability to get paid. Okay. My last question is this. Plus and the minus. If we win, we'll get generally how, how much over, over, say, three years? So it varies. For example, on the, on the last case that we funded, it was unusually attractive. And if we win the case after three years, our investors will get back 7.8 times the amount they invested. So it's unusually high. Most cases will not be that good. And there were special situations, special factors which made the return so high. In general, I think it's probably a good rule of thumb that 
our investors will get back their principal plus around perhaps 70% for each year that the capital is, is deployed. If the case wins a trial, they'll typically get back principal plus two times the invested, so a multiple on capital of three times. That's the upside. The downside is that if we lose the case, you lose all of your capital in some scenarios. There are situations where we can find an insurance company to insure the net invested into the case, which is to say the amount raised less our fees. So on something around half of the cases we've done so far, around 80% of the principal from investors has been insured by an insurance company. So your downside if the insurance pays out is limited to around 20%. So you're in this unusual scenario where you can double or triple your money if the case wins, and then you only have 20% downside if the case loses. So it's an arbitrage which kind of shouldn't exist in finance, but it does because of a new market. There is, however, a extreme negative scenario where you can actually lose more than you invest into the case, which sounds counterintuitive, but you know there are examples. For example, in contract for differences, you can also lose more than you invest into a particular investment. And the way it can go wrong, there are two main ways it can go wrong. So suppose that you lose the case, and then suppose that the insurance company who's insuring against adverse cost risk becomes insolvent. Then suppose that the claimant doesn't have the ability to pay adverse costs itself. And suppose then that the judge looks to the SPV, which funded the case, and then decides to pierce the corporate veil and go behind the limited company and seek to recover on a several basis, on a proportionate basis to each of the investors in the SPV, um, some of the adverse costs. So that's one scenario. The other scenario is that the insurance company decides that the claimant misrepresented the facts of the case or decides that the solicitor was negligent in pursuing the case. And on that basis, they're not going to honor their insurance policy. And again, if the claimant then doesn't have the cash to pay and the judge decides to allow the corporate veil to be pierced, then investors can have some exposure. So it's an unusual, so it's not all upside, you know. So if it goes well, uh, you can double, triple your money. And then if it goes badly, you're probably going to lose all of your money in most scenarios. And then there's this extremely small risk, which is well below 1% in my view, that you could lose more than you invest. And, you know, again, that's, that speaks to the importance of having a diversified portfolio, of, you know, uh, around perhaps 10 of these cases. Okay. From my side, I think that's all. <laughs> it has been extremely interesting, I would say. And I'm actually interested in pursuing such okay, kinds of investment. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Well, thanks for uh, your interest. And uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you very much for your time. It's a new investment uh, asset class for most investors, although it might have been around for some time. So I think there's a lot of questions that we had to cover, and I'm sure I have a few more that we'll leave for maybe another time. But it's very interesting as an investor. And I was wondering whether you can recommend any resources or books where investors like, like us can learn more about this type of investing before committing. Yeah, it's a good question. There's a good book written by Max Volsky, which I think is just called Litigation Funding. Max Volsky is one of the founders of Lectures, um, who's kind of the, the US version, more established than us, but they were one of the first platforms in the US. Then there are some good um, 
online websites, I think Litigation Finance, Journal, Litigation Futures. There are quite a few good online um, resources that people can look to. I think there's the Association of Litigation Funders has a website. And then, of course, we have a learn section on axiafunder.com. So, you know, there's a certain amount of information there. But I think there's a lot of good information online for people that are interested. Excellent. So, um, yeah, thank you very much. And how can people get in touch uh, with you personally? Or how would you prefer if people have any questions that have not been covered? How can they get in touch? Well, so on our website, axiofunder.com, we have a, a chat uh, intercom system. So people can just very easily get in touch. Or we're on Twitter, I think, at axiofunder on Twitter. But yeah, so the website or um, social media. All right, then that's all. And thank you very much for being with us today. Yeah, great. Thank you again for for your interest. Thank you, Cormac. Okay. Okay, bye. Bye, Bye. thank you. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Mastermind.fm. If you liked what you heard in today's episode, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your feedback encourages us to keep producing the kind of content that you have come to rely on for your own entrepreneurial journey. And if you have a question or topic you'd like us to cover on the show, send it to us through our website or via email at podcast at mastermind.fm or even connect with us on Twitter at mastermind.fm. We look forward to hearing from you and hope you have a fantastic week.